You're listening to Pop Culture Detective Audio Files. In each episode, we investigate the social and political messages embedded in popular media. I'm your host, Jonathan McIntosh, and on today's episode, we'll be analyzing season two of the hit Apple TV comedy series, Ted Lasso. It's all about believing that everything's going to work out in the end. Exactly as it's supposed to. And isn't the idea of never give up one of the things we always talk about in sports? And shouldn't that apply to people too? It's a beautiful metaphor for many of life's journeys. We did an in-depth discussion of Ted Lasso's first season back on our first episode of this podcast, so feel free to go back and listen to that one if you haven't already. Today, we're going to be focusing on season two. The series has continued to garner praise from critics and rack up a whole bunch of industry awards. Ted Lasso received 20 Emmy nominations in 2021 and won seven of them. Season two makes some changes to the Ted Lasso formula and addresses some of the shortcomings in season one especially in terms of representation, though there are still some outstanding issues. On the whole, we get more and deeper character development, and the writers attempt to complicate Ted's happy-go-lucky, wholesome persona. So returning to continue our discussion of Ted Lasso, we have fellow media critics and friends of the show, Amran Siddiqui and Felicia Lopez. Felicia is an assistant professor at the University of California, Merced, in the Department of Literatures, Languages, and Cultures where her research covers a wide range of topics related to indigenous history, culture, language, and media. Welcome back, Felicia. Thank you, Jonathan. Emron Siddiqui is a writer and filmmaker challenging systems of domination. Their writing on white supremacy, patriarchy, and popular media has been published by The Atlantic, Bitch Magazine, and BuzzFeed, among others. They are currently the communications director at Black Star Projects, home of the Scene Journal, and a Black Star Film Festival. Welcome back to the podcast, Emron. Yeah, so great to be here. Excited to talk about this show. So I think I'd like to start this discussion by highlighting one of the overarching themes of the show, which is men's growth and men's transformation. That's something that we talked about at length in our previous podcast on Ted Lasso. Though I think in season one, that growth was very personal And in season two, the focus shifts from interpersonal growth to men struggling to be better, but this time with the help of therapy. So we are introduced to Dr. Sharon Fieldstone, uh, the the team's new sports psychologist, and we see her treating a bunch of the players over the course of the season. And then finally, she works with Ted himself. I just wanted to ask both of you how you thought the writers handled the topic of of counseling in general, because as we've discussed before on this podcast, and as we talked about in our Falcon and the Winter Soldier episode, men in therapy is often handled very poorly in Hollywood. It is often a joke, uh, and it is rarely uh, effective. But here on Ted Lasso, I felt like they did a pretty good job, you know, at least as much as you can within this sort of short comedy format. But, you know, it's not a joke, and it does end up being helpful and effective. Yeah, I mean, like it's television, so it, it, it starts to creep beyond what seems realistic to some extent. But um, in terms of just the idea of how therapy is presented in the show, I thought it was welcome, at least. I think the fact that Dr. Sharon eventually has a life outside of being a therapist and we get to see some of that and that in the end it does seem 
very clear if you if you walk away from the show one thing you probably would understand is that it helped ted yeah i'll agree with you a hundred percent on that i i think that uh i know a lot of uh, of americans who are really against seeing psychologists or psychiatrists or therapists uh and so being able to address the hangups, the obstacles, the you know the the reasons that people create for themselves for getting for getting much needed emotional and mental health and support. Um, I, I appreciated that they take the time to kind of talk about why it's also worthwhile to to give it a try, to give therapy a try, and so I thought it was effective in doing that. You know, I I also know a bunch of people who are um, not not just hesitant about therapy, but like hostile, like openly yes. hostile mm-hmm. to the idea. And uh, I feel like a lot of them uh, are men, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them are men. And I felt like the Ted character really embodied that sort of hostility. You know, that that conversation that he has where he accuses Sharon of, you know, just doing it for the money and only, you know, you charge me for an hour, but you only work for 50 minutes, right? That kind of stuff rang very true in terms of the Excuses a lot of people give, and I, I actually really liked uh, the conversation that you know Ted goes in, into Rebecca's office, and they have that little back and forth about why would you need a therapist? I can diagnose myself. You ever been to a therapist, Rebecca? What for? I can diagnose myself in a heartbeat. I thought being invulnerable would protect me, so I pushed people away for years, leading me directly to my greatest fear: being alone. Big whoop. Big whoop. Yeah, I don't get it. Why pay someone to do what a friend should do for you for free? Exactly. I mean, that's why you have friends, isn't it? I mean, to burden them with your issues and anxieties, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they both agree. Oh, yeah. Well, you just, that's what you have friends for, right? And then they ask each other, do you need to talk about anything? And they're like, no. Right? Except that we know that they both have a lot to talk about. Like, and they're lying to their friend right there. But yeah, that that's a really, that was a really wonderful conversation because there's such awkwardness in there and you can see uh, that they're, I think, kind of highlighting the fact that, you know, you don't necessarily want to spill all of your, all of your problems to, to your friend. You know, you, you maybe want to keep that in a space where you can, <laughs> you can then enjoy your friendship in a different kind of way. You don't want to burden your friends with that. In a, in a lot of ways, Sharon is a is the anti Ted on this show, which I, which I wasn't expecting, uh, and I think that a lot of the audience wasn't expecting it. They chose to bring in a character who seems designed to butt heads with Ted, not only in terms of you know their personalities, but in terms of their philosophy, their ideology. I mean, Ted Ted is threatened by Sharon because she represents something important, and she represents this challenge to Ted's sort of down-home folksy solutions because he goes to fix Danny's problem with his normal Ted quirkiness and it doesn't work. And the idea that maybe there are things that can't be fixed with Ted's happy-go-lucky wholesome persona, that there are some things that are deeper, that require focus and professionalism and uh, intentionality to really work out. Like that's a challenge to Ted's whole character from the first season. And they do that through the character of Sharon, which you know is is a is a bold move because at first we don't like her. Well, Doc Doctor. Right, yes, of course, sorry. Um, doctor. 
So then you're pretty confident that you can help us out with Danny, huh? Are you good at your job? Put all bullshit humility aside and be honest with me. Are you good at your job, yes or no? Um, yes. I believe you. Well, as good as you are at your job, I'm twice as good at mine. We're very lucky to have you. That's good to know. Thank you for coming here. She's set up to be opposing everyone's favorite character. And not only everyone's favorite character, but his philosophy that everyone from the first season you know, is so attached to. Well, I, you know, I'll say that uh, I was right there when they first introduced her character. Uh, I was against her as well. She seemed to be encroaching uh, on the fun, right? It was like, uh, it was kind of like the grown up was entering the room. And it, that's literally how they kind of present it when Ted Lasso meets her, right? That, that they're just... They're just these boys who are playing with their with their watered up paper ball, <laughs> batting it back and forth. And then the grown up walks in and says, what's going on here? And kind of stops all of the fun. Um, but then, you know, I thought the show did a really great job of making us empathize with her. I felt like I got to know her uh, and she was an imperfect person. But, you know, as a woman of color myself, I really appreciated that here we have as far as I can tell, the only person on the show with a, a higher degree, right? She's very, very well educated. She's a confident woman. She speaks many languages and she is a strong and independent woman. It doesn't make her perfect. And so they make her flawed. Uh, but, you know, I, I appreciate that they don't try to present her as a perfect person, but she's still a hardworking, good, honest person. Uh, and, you know, I think, sadly, I think that, that those are rare representations of women of color. When she's presented as um, like a challenge to Ted and that he's uncomfortable with it, one of the things I think is interesting about that is that there's an undercurrent to that because they are so different, not only in their philosophies, but just also in the way they look. You know, Sharon's a black woman. And that point about that there's some things that are deeper or require more intentionality than Ted's philosophy might accommodate for, at least since the way it's presented in season one. There's like a subtle moment where he picks up a book in her apartment, and it's a book about the Middle Passage, I think, and and uh, there's a reference to Black people being enslaved, and that Sharon's reading a book about that. What it, to me, suggests is that Sharon's perspective or philosophy is informed by a lot, you know, and there's a lot behind what she's saying. I do feel like, again, this is something the show often kind of plays with. It gives you these little like hints or it'll mention colonization and then, you know, just kind of mention it. Um, but I did appreciate in, in her, you know, as, as you get to know her better, like you said in the beginning, they're oppositional, but by the end you realize they're maybe after something similar, but that Sharon's trying to go deeper. A major theme is personal growth. It was in the first season. It is still in the second season, and and a little bit of redemption, sort of men finding redemption. You know, we have that with Jamie. You know, I wasn't even sure if Jamie was going to come back. You know, I thought maybe his journey was over after the first season. So I was a little surprised to to see him. And he comes back into the show, and he is. What's that show he's on? It's what's that reality? Uh, show? He is on a show called what is it called? Like Lust Island or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, he comes back into the show. Jamie comes back into the show. He's still selfish and arrogant and clueless and uh, a, a bit of a sexist, right? I mean, that's made very clear. 
But then things start to fall apart for him. How you been? Uh, awesome. Yeah? Best. Pretty good. Okay. A little depressed. Yeah. It's all shit, Ted. Hmm. That was a real roller coaster there. I was tall enough to join you on that ride. This was, I thought, really interesting. I mean, this was something that I was, I was not expecting. And I was, you know, I appreciated the way they did it because Jamie wants to fit in. You know, he's kind of been, he's been brought low. You know, he's no longer the star player. He's no longer beloved. You know, everyone kind of hates him uh, for good reason. He was a, he tormented them. And he's looking for redemption. He's looking to be accepted. And he's terrible at it. <laughs> you know, he, he thinks he's going to buy them all PS5s and they're going to they're love him again. And it turns out that that is obviously not the case. And so he has to find another way to, to be forgiven and to be accepted. And I thought that journey was really interesting. And I especially liked that it really began with the team, at least, and with Sam with an act of solidarity. Because you know Sam and the other Nigerians on the team are going to protest their sponsor. Jamie is the first one, right after his therapy session with Dr. Sharon, too, <laughs> is, is the first one to say, I will stand in solidarity with you. And that sort of uh, inspires the rest of the team to do it as well. And, you know, you're reminding me, you're thinking about these these themes that are showing up throughout the, the season. I really thought this was the season of fathers and sons uh, and a little bit, a little bit of mothers and daughters, um, but mostly fathers and sons and just kind of highlighting the, the ways that that fathers can potentially be quite damaging to their sons. In this case, like catastrophic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so uh, in a way, it makes Jamie's journey that much more spectacular because he has the most spectacularly awful father on the entire show. Um, and a lot of them have bad fathers on the show. Uh, but but yes, his, his is the worst. Yeah. I mean, I found that moment where he confronts his father to be, to be, I mean, one of the most powerful moments, I think, in the whole show. You know, Jamie's father comes in to the locker room and he's drunk and he's belligerent and he, uh, you know, is belittling his son. And it's just, just an awful. And belittling the entire team who's standing there watching. Yeah. I mean, it's just gut-wrenching. And you can see on Jamie's face that he is just wrecked. They get into a bit of an altercation and Jamie just punches him. And it's such a contrast to the way that physical violence is often portrayed, especially face punching. <laughs> Uh, face punching is almost always a triumphant moment in media, right? The guy deserves it. You punch him. Everyone feels better, right? This is like a super trope in media. So the the uh, the fact that Jamie punched him and it was just dead silence and you could see that Jamie's starting to tear up, right? As soon as he does it, it wasn't a triumphant moment. It was supposed, it was sad. It was tragic. It was awful. I mean, obviously the father deserved it, but- that's, it's not presented as like this feel-good moment. I mean, it is, it is supposed to be gut-wrenching that this relationship is, is so terrible that you know, he ends up being punched by his son. And I mean, you can really feel the anguish in that scene. Um, and, there's, and there's silence. I mean, Jamie's standing there tearing up. You know, Coach Beard throws him out, throws the father out. No one moves. You know, you've got this you know, this, this star player suddenly on the verge of tears in the middle of the locker room. And then you have, you know, 
Roy comes up, doesn't say a word, just hugs him, you know, and then he breaks down, Jamie breaks down. And it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful uh, and very powerful moment, I thought, the way that that played out. Because it could have played out in a, in a much different way, uh, but the, the, the grief that is allowed to sort of hang there in an uncomfortable way, as you see one man who is also not great at vulnerability, you know, comforting him, you know, physically, you know, like hugging him, embracing him was, was I thought was unexpected and, and very powerful. Yeah. Like the dad coming into the locker room with this very hyper-masculine performance. And it's really kind of set up as like, this is a, a moment to in, within patriarchy for you to prove like the, the thing you have to do in this situation is you have to dominate me because I'm, I'm coming in and challenging you and putting you down in front of all your, your community and saying that they're all, you know, lower than me as well. You have to protect all of them and not even protect them, prove to them that you're a man. And the only option here is you have to fight me by presenting it. Like, as you said, almost a, it's out of desperation and, and, and it's actually acknowledging the hopelessness of like that equation. Like there's no, nothing I can do here, but punch you. But, you know, the team also doesn't cheer in a traditional sports film. I think the team might be like in the background being like, get out of here, like, you know, cursing them out and like all that stuff. But the silence I think is really effective, if not realistic, but effective because it shows that, you know, the team's not about this either. The dad thought he was going to come in and be in like a a familiar place. And then they kind of like Mm -hmm. subvert that. Right. We did an episode a few months ago talking about season one. Uh, I think that we'd covered a lot. One of our big topics of conversation was representations of characters of color. Uh, And then we also talked about Danny and how he was uh, also underused and a bit stereotyped. Uh, And Danny comes back and has a bit more to do, but not, maybe not enough. This is my area is thinking about representations of various people of Latin American descent, specifically Mexicans and Mexican Americans. And so I had heard that Danny Rojas was going to have a, a larger role in the second season. And so with bated breath, I watched that first episode and it was just incredibly disappointing. I mean, uh, I think in general, the actor who p- portrays Danny Rojas is, is really great. Uh, I really enjoy watching him. But the character of Danny Rojas, he is kind of a collection of stereotypes at this point. He is superstitious. He's also religious. Uh, he is very childlike. Uh, you know, there's this kind of somber funeral episode at one point, And yet he's like a baby and can't wear dress shoes, which also doesn't match with the re- religious stereotype, right? Because if you're a religious Mexican, then you've been you've been wearing dress shoes since before you could walk. But uh, <laughs> but either way, <laughs> um, and so in this first episode, we see him experience this tragedy. He inadvertently kills a dog. Right? He's trying right. to make this penalty kick, and then he kills this dog by hitting it in the head. I, I almost turned off the whole show after that. I was like, oh man. I feel like if you're going to kill a, a cute animal, like you better be for some really good reason. 
And I don't think that there was. You know, it, it was a plot device just to get us Dr. Sharon. And, you know, I love Dr. Sharon, and so I'm not going to complain too much about it. Um, but really, uh, they did a disservice to that poor dog and to, to the character of Danny Rojas. Because, you know, in the course of one episode, we see him experiencing this extremely traumatic event, right? You've killed a, a living animal inadvertently. And, and, and the mascot of the team. Yes, right. This is like a family member, right? This is, of course, very upsetting. And so he, you know, he we see him. He's in the shower. He's he's saying his hail marys in Spanish. Uh, he's trying to wash the death off. He says, "Soccer is is no longer life. Soccer is death." Right. So he is very upset by this. And yet somehow Dr. Sharon can come in and in the course of maybe, I don't know, it looks like a day and a half on the on the show. I'm not even sure. He's completely fine. He seems to be cured miraculously. What he has learned, the entirety of his character development appears to be that he has gone from football is life to football is death, but also football but mostly life. Yes, yes, that's his epiphany. Yeah, that's his epiphany. Which, you know, I, I, I will say is just a little bit disappointing because if, if this is a character who is from Mexico, I think most people who are at least from the Southwest of the United States will know that Mexican culture and their ideas about death are very interesting and unique. And there's a lot to explore there that that was lacking. And instead, it just seems like the Dr. Sharon flipped a magic switch and he was totally fine. Does make him seem very shallow, right? It does make him seem like he doesn't have a lot of emotional depth. You know, if you really think about Danny's storyline, it it kind of makes the other parts about, you know, growth and, and therapy feel less powerful because, I mean, I, they don't want you to think about it too much. I think that's why They've introduced, once they introduce that plot device to get Dr. Sharon in, they don't go back because if you did, you have to give it, he has to have this like big journey because it's actually a deep trauma. Yeah. And they, and they completely ignore it because, you know, in the funeral scene, right, where the episode is dealing entirely with death rather than him addressing this whole lingering thing of football was death for a time. He is just the comic relief and his feet hurt and he has to put on Rebecca's slippers. I mean, he's a joke and he he's he acts like a like a child. It's just incredibly disappointing. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah, and it is disappointing. And I think we can contrast that with it's hard to talk about Nate because he is in the middle of his trajectory. Mm -hmm. I assume because of the way the this show seems is. like it will be season three will be a redemption season for Nate. Right. We're, right. Calling, I mean, the, we're calling it. Can we all agree? Yes. <laughs> yeah. The even the, the showrunners have joked that season two is Empire Strikes Back and season three will be Return of the Jedi. So we're definitely going to see that. I mean, the, the show has a very strong theme relating to redemption. So I think Nate will be redeemed. I mean, that's the that's the guess. You know, Nate's character is is a complicated character. The issues that he has, they seem contradictory almost. Because on the one level, he's very egotistical, right? He wants to be the boss. He loves being talked about. He loves being the center of attention. He loves getting all the credit, right? So he has this sort of reading, scrolling through all his tweets about yeah, him, right? Yeah, it's very this sort of a megalomaniac almost. But at the same time, resting right with that is deep insecurity and self hatred. Yes. Right. The re repeated, the number of times that he spits at himself in the face in a mirror, that kind of self-degradation uh, is a very strange, 
Very strange. Well, he gets not the best advice from uh, from Rebecca and Keely on that. I mean, because it starts with like <laughs> that scene where Rebecca's like the the way I go into a meeting and make myself bigger is I literally, you know, do this like monster thing in the in the mirror, you know, just fake it till you make it, basically. And like if you go into the bathroom and build yourself up, then you'll have that confidence. But then the twist, I guess, is that Nate's version of building himself up is spitting at himself, which I think comments on his idea of what a man is and how, what it means mm-hmm. to be a man, uh, which I thought was really powerful, actually, in the sense of like, that is very much often what we're taught about, you know, being a man is that like, to be a man, you have to dominate other men and other people, you have to put yourself above others. So if you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you're saying, I'm a man, you know, what do you do? And he puts himself down. And I think that the show makes a good comment there that that's the only way to, you know, fill that role is to have a a bit of self-hatred. I would like to say that the advice that Rebecca gave of making her, how she makes herself big and she kind of gets these claws out and her fangs and I think that's actually pretty good advice. And I, you know, I've heard that advice quite a few times. Uh, and I, I hear it especially shared among women, among women of color. Um, and I do think it comes with this idea of like, you know, uh, we're not the prey here. <laughs> we're not going to be preyed on anymore. We're not going to be seen as lesser or as smaller. Uh, and so I think it, it works if you're coming to it with the right frame of reference, right? But if you're prone to be a predator to begin with, you don't want to then... <laughs> lean into your your predator nature. So we had talked about in our previous episode, we had talked about that scene where Nate gains his confidence and and goes from being the kit man to being an assistant coach by going into the locker room and belittling all of the team members, right? And and telling it like it is and essentially being a being an asshole, right? Spitting Domi- in their faces basically, yeah, right? Dominating them. That is, in the first season, presented as, as just a, a positive thing. Uh, there's no sense that that's a problem. Now, we on the podcast had said, that's a problem. <laughs> and it's interesting to me that it seems like in season two, the writers may be reconsidered from the first episode. Like from the jump, we see Nate belittling Will, who has his old job. And you see the coaches, the other coaches looking at each other like, oh, this is a problem, right? The interesting thing here is that it goes from Nate being on this journey to gain confidence in himself, which is, you know, I think a positive thing. That's a that's a worthwhile journey. It becomes clear that it's not just confidence that he's after. Uh, it is domination. It is it is he wants to be. To me, it feels like a comment on sort of internalized male entitlement. That intersection of lack of confidence, sort of lack of self respect, and need for validation and domination or the quest for domination sort of coupled with this entitled feelings is a dangerous space. I mean, that that's the adorable misogynist kind of mm-hmm. problem that we have in our society where these, these men who don't feel themselves to be masculine enough lash out because they want to be that thing that they feel like they aren't. Yeah. And, and they, they give it some context, which I think is important, which is his home life his relationship to his father, right? Who who doesn't give him any any encouragement or any uh, praise at all? 
the interaction with the father, of course, the father is not loving. He is not supportive, (laughs) but he also doesn't seem like a villain. Right. And so he seems kind of indifferent. Right. So where, you know, whereas other fathers are seen as as very, very violent or abusive, um, we see this father who is is abusive in his neglect. I mean, I think what's interesting to me about that, and I might be reading too far into it for the show in my own life, but, uh, you know, I felt like his dad had had, there was like some sort of implication there that his dad has had a lot of life experience and being disappointed Mm -hmm. by the system, the world in which they live. He's not impressed by much because, you know, my community might say is like, well, you have to be a superstar. You have to do that. That's like the bare you know, minimum to survive. It's like, you have to be the smartest person and and do all this. And you have to follow the cultural traditions and in some cases, the religious expectations. So, you you know, his dad's not going to be impressed by much potentially because he's had to go through a lot to just make it in this country. You know, I also wanted to say though, it's like, what's interesting, if the show goes here, I think it would be great. I don't know if it will in season three, but you know, Nate's also reacting to the like baseline norm of the sports environment in which he works, which the show often doesn't comment on, but is actually representing, which is that like your heroes in the show all have, they're all physically fit, thin-ish people. They have, for the most part, partners who are also thin. And it's presenting this idea, whether it's commented on or not, that to be a hero, to be a leader, you have to fulfill these different categories. So when Nate makes a move on Keeley in one of the key moments that like leads to his point of no return, I guess, in the show is when he tries to kiss or does kiss Keeley without her consent. He's wearing his suit. He's trying to hold on to the fame and the power he got from the, the coaching move he made. And he's wearing Roy's suit very specifically. Yes, that's right. Uh, so he's trying his best to play the role that the show itself sets up for him or the world of the sports institution sets up for him like this is how you're going to be a man the people around him are actually embodying some of these things too and i think for nate overall i don't know if the show does it gets it across clearly enough he's constantly frustrated by that like he's like i'm doing what is makes me a man but you keep telling me i can't be that you know his frustration is tied to this like if you can just play these roles you should get the reward which is that entitlement piece but i think if the show has the room for it, it would be good to make that connection more directly to the actual institution in which he works. Can I say that, you know, I really, really hated that scene where he kisses Keely without her consent. In every sense, I hated that scene. Um, And I I can see what I believe they were trying to do, right? Uh, And they do it later, again, where he confesses to to Roy, oh, I kissed kissed your girlfriend, I kissed Keely. And Roy was like, ah, it's no big deal, it doesn't matter, right? Uh, And, but Keely's response specifically was awful and it was quite similar. Oh, no, no, it's fine, it's okay, it's okay. And it totally was not fine. And, you know, part of it seems like, oh yeah, they're trying to play it off like, she doesn't think it's a big deal. It's like being kissed by a little boy, you know, little boys are cute. They don't mean you any harm, but that's not what's happening. He's not a little boy. He's a grown man. As much as they're infantilizing him in this show, he's a grown man and he, he assaulted a woman. But the way that they portray that, that act as something that was not a big deal 
because of who he was, uh, it's still, it's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. Even if their goal was to paint him in that particular light. When Keely and I went shopping the other day, I kissed her. Yeah, she told me about it. It's okay. I, I kissed her, I kissed your girlfriend. We good. All Jamie did was talk to her and you wanted to kill him. I mean, don't you at least want to headbutt me or something? You made a mistake, Nate. Don't worry about it. No, no, I deserve to be headbutted. I'd be happy to headbutt you, Nate. What's interesting about this, like, what actually pushes Nate over the edge in the end is that is the fact that Roy says it's okay. Yeah. Because yeah. he, yeah. Nate wants it to be not okay because he, he wants to yeah. be punished and like... Right. Nate wants to be seen as a threat to Roy. He wants Roy to punch him. I don't know if because he wants to be punished. I think he wants to be seen as masculine enough to be threatening to Roy's relationship. Because, he, you know, again, he wants to be a man. Uh, and he even brings up Jamie. And he's like, you know, Jamie also, you know, transgressed your relationship by saying he loves Keely and you were threatening to kill him. But you'd not threaten to kill me, and that Roy doesn't treat him in the same way infuriates him. I mean, this is—I think—we're getting to some of the core parts of the toxicity that can be masculinity in our culture. Here we have a character who is who wants to get into a violent confrontation over a woman with another man because it will make him feel, even if he gets pummeled, it'll make him feel more manly. And that is how twisted. Masculinity is in our culture, and and it's just total disregard for Keely. Like mm -hmm. he doesn't really want a friend, mm -hmm. you know. And she's being a friend to him. Yeah, she's just being decent. She's being a nice, decent person. And he's like, either you're a sexual partner or you're nothing. He's so involved in his what's going on in his head that he treats her like nothing. And then I do agree that the show doesn't come back to it, which is a huge problem. And I feel like in in the next season they have to come back to it, or they have to have Keely's say more about like what her experience is because what you do get is that Nate's disregarding Keely. They could take it in a whole bunch of different directions. I think what Felicia's point is, is a good one. Like she, she is trying to feel, make Nate feel better mm -hmm. for assaulting her in that scene. It's disturbing. And it's, this seems like the kind of thing the show would address. So the lack of, of it being even commented on, I thought was, was striking. Yeah. I mean, I agree. <laughs> and <It's>, we're done. <laughs> You know, what you were saying, Felicia, about Becca's lesson for Nate about like, make yourself big, um, because, you know, that's one way of navigating these spaces that aren't made for us, you know, I think that mm -hmm. that's a good point. But I think that for me, that's where Rebecca's character, because of her position and power in the world gets more complicated. And it, the advice coming from Rebecca is different than it coming even from Keely, because right. from Rebecca, it strikes me as like kind of that lean in feminism idea that like <laughs> literally you know just lean in and it'll be fine and rebecca to the credit of the show Re that is rebecca's perspective on a lot of things is like she's just kind of like oh why would that be hard you know i'm rich she says like something like why don't you just buy the restaurant if you can't get a seat at the table you know um so one of the things that doesn't come up in the show a lot is money as it relates to that team i mean we we have this Ghanaian billionaire but like you know i did a little bit of research on like the average English Premier League team, which I know that they're on the lower end here, but the average one is worth a billion dollars. So even if they're on the lower end, this is a mega business, you know? Yeah. 
and she's and some at of the, the head players of have Ferraris or or Lamborghinis or something too. So, yeah, and they try to make us sympathize with her through the Christmas episode, and we don't we don't have to talk too much about the Christmas episode. But what I didn't <laughs> love about that was that it was like she's like the benevolent capitalist person who goes around and gives charity to tiny Tim or whatever. I don't know, I don't know all the Christmas thing though. Um, but the reason that comes up for me is it connects to some of this other stuff about yeah, girl boss feminism. Do, do you want to quickly define girl boss feminism for our audience here? <laughs> yeah. Just, well, just this idea that like uh, under patriarchy, that a way to escape it is to replicate in many ways the the dominance and power of, you know, men. So within that, like making enough money to have power within the patriarchal system, it's very much tied to whiteness because it's often white women who already have power. They're tangentially, you know, they're sitting at the table as in this case, Rebecca is. And so I just think her position is much more complicated than it shows up in the show. And then I just feel like that combined with just the show's overall lack of acknowledging money. I don't know. I feel complicated about Rebecca. I don't know how you all feel, but yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, th- <laughs> there is definitely a a class element that is hinted at, but but largely missing in terms of critique. You know, when she meets Sam and they find out they've been they've been talking anonymously on that dating app. You know, she says at first she says I'm your boss, but then it quickly transitions into I'm too old for you. You know, while the age difference is significant and and there is power dynamic issues in that, I for me the bigger power issue is that she's his boss. She literally owns the team he plays on. If the genders had been reversed, is exactly the kind of issue that the show's writers would probably address and quite harshly. And you know they they do reverse it not exactly, but they do to some degree with Rupert. You know we're supposed to be very critical of that relationship, right? right. Rupert and and his new wife, his Becca. new Rebecca, Becca, right? And and they now have a have a child. You know she says that she sleeps in the crib or something with the baby, right? They're kind of highlighting the fact that she is like a baby compared to him, and yet you know while that relationship kind of reviles us. We can look at Rebecca and Sam and we, you know, from my perspective, I'm like, oh, no, this is this is not okay. The show frames it in a way where you want them to be happy. You want them to be together. And they are very intentional about trying to make it seem like they're on an even playing field. Uh, and, and they're not at all. Uh, intellectually, they may be. But in terms of a power dynamic, they are not. Mm-hmm. Like I was like shocked that they let that one pass that they're not going to talk about the power dynamic of a boss dating an employee. Well, especially because at the time, I mean, during that period, Sam's debating whether or not to take another job. He's in this relationship with a person who determines his, to some extent, his paycheck. Mm-hmm. But the show doesn't really thread the connections there of like, there's a, there was an opportunity there, I guess, just to like have a conversation about how those things, there's a conflict of interest. Um, but yeah, they don't. Really talk about well, and I mean, they make Rebecca and they make Sam so likable, and and they they make that relationship seem so healthy, you know, from a superficial standpoint that they remove all the power dynamics there, and so the audience is on board, and they want it to happen. Since, yeah, we're talking about the Sam and Rebecca, uh, a la Cheers <laughs> relationship. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, the the rom communism 
Gentlemen, believing in Ron communism is all about believing that everything's gonna work out in the end. If all those attractive people with their amazing apartments and interesting jobs, usually in some creative field, can go through some lighthearted struggles and still end up happy, then so can we. Which is such an interesting a way that they uh, brought it up as a topic, right? I'm a communist, <laughs> a rom communist, right? It was just very, very strange. Which, from um, my, my perspective, as someone who uh, who spends a lot of time watching a romantic comedy is to critique them, uh, being a rom communist is way worse than being a communist. <laughs> <laughs> totally, yeah. One of the things I always think about is that you know romantic comedies are positioned as films for women. But I think one of the things that often isn't discussed is like, just like all of Hollywood, historically, the most popular romantic films were written by men and they're directed by men. Nor Efron aside, like a majority of the top romantic comedies of all time are, you know, men's perspective on romance. You know, one of the, the most obnoxious examples of that is Love Actually, but mm-hmm. the show parallels and connects itself to Love Actually a couple of times, including in Christmas episode, they do the whole card outside the door thing. We could go. We could have a whole episode on romantic comedy. So I don't know if I have time <laughs> oh, yeah, to, for sure. to like break all that down. Right. Well, I mean, it it seems like they are paying homage to a lot of these uh, romantic comedies. I mean, they have they name drop a lot of them. They talk about Bridget Jones' Diary. They mm-hmm. quote Jerry Maguire. They obviously, like you're saying, them love actually. Comes they have a, a brainstorming session where they're trying to think of all of their famous uh, right. rom com leads. Yeah. So, I mean, it feels like homage, right? I mean, as people who study media, we know that romantic comedies have some of the most toxic relationship <laughs> dynamics of any kind of movie uh, because of the behavior is, is often framed as, as harmless and yet is quite quite damaging, quite quite harmful. Yeah. So the, the thing that I think is troubling about the emphasis on romantic comedies in the show is that like romantic comedies are a genre which historically have emphasized the perspective on love which is so limiting it's the idea that it's it's just between a man and a woman and in most cases led by the man and in this show there's so many opportunities to break free from that there are even romantic comedies now like in the last 20 years that you could reference Mm. that break away from that but the show very much is referencing like key markers of particularly in like the 90s uh, and early right. 2000s of those films which were reinforcing what I think are like harmful ideas of heteronormativity and and mostly white almost all white they they mentioned Jennifer Lopez I think Danny's the one who mentioned yeah, Jennifer Lopez <laughs> and not a be too late yeah, right <laughs> exactly so. but like for the most part they're talking about these films that are between a white man and a white woman and I think that's significant to the limitations of the show's vision of of romance, even when it's between Sam and Rebecca, it connects to all these things of like not talking about power and not talking about these different dynamics, because that's what happens in romantic comedies. Right. So, and similarly, that that card scene in Love Actually that they adapt for for the show is damaging as well. But it's supposed to be funny, but it's really horrifying. I mean, they're threatening a small child. Uh, and at one point, you you know, Keeley's like, oh, I'm sorry. And like, no, no, not me. But, you know, they, they are absolutely threatening a child. Yeah. <laughs> in that scene. On one of the cards, it says, you know, be nice to me or he'll beat you up. And it's like an arrow pointing to to Roy and Roy kind of snarls. He goes, at, Yeah, at the, at the little <laughs> kid. It makes me think of how Roy is represented 
And you know, we like Roy. I think you know he's a he's a he's a well written character, and he's and he's quite likable. And I think the reason that he's likable, or he's written to be likable, is by setting up a juxtaposition between the way he acts around Keeley mm-hmm. and the way he acts around all the other guys. Roy has this sort of very aggressive, confrontational, combative attitude. Um, it's often played for comedy. What did you think? Did your former club play well? I thought they played like shit. They were too timid. They were too respectful of United. They were lucky they didn't lose by three or four or ten. That's harsh, Roy. United's been on a good run recently. Who gives a shit, Chris? It's <laughs> <laughs> how you do it. I enjoy his candor. Again, we apologise for almost every word Roy just said. He's on. He's a, he's a pundit on the sports show, and it's taken by the by the audience. In within the context of the show, as being authentic, you know, finally this guy, there's someone on the on talking about football who's being authentic, you know, because he's being aggressive, because he's cursing all the time, uh, because he's putting people down, and and that translates to his coaching style and the way that he engages with other players is also aggressive and combative. And the reason we're supposed to like him is because when he is challenged on something, he just says fuck. And then storms off. And then he goes and he does something really sweet and very thoughtful and gives Keeley her space. And it was it's it's great. I mean, his relationship with Keeley is fantastic. Mm-hmm. His relationship with everybody else, other than his niece, his relationship with all the other men is awful. Mm-hmm. Even when it's trying to be sweet. There's this scene where he confronts Jamie about Jamie having told Keeley that he's still in love with her. And they're you know they're they're about to fight. I mean, this is this is how it's set up. And then before they can get into it, Jamie just apologizes and says, "I respect you. I respect your relationship." And then Roy has this realization that he can't just punch him and knock his teeth out, which he had threatened to do, and he storms off. And then later he says, "I forgave him," but we didn't see him forgive Jamie. He had this internal realization. He said "fuck" and he walked away. Right and until later. When he wants to have a positive moment with Jamie, and then in order to have that positive moment after they've won a game, he he then physically assaults him. <laughs> and he's like, why did you do that? And then he gives him a big hug. He says very specifically, he says, so I could do this. And then he hugs him. And he has already said, I have forgiven him. And the only way he can like reestablish this sort of physical bond is by assaulting him. And the show does not critique that at all. We are supposed to think that that this is just the way that men have to deal with things. But it also wants us to be super impressed that he forgave him, but then he didn't forgive. You know what I mean? Like it's trying to have it both ways. Yeah. Uh, And Jamie shows way more growth than Roy does in that situation. I was just going to say, it's almost like the characters kind of painted into a corner in that way, because what makes Roy, you know, his like thing is that he's... He's this guy who's about to beat you up, but then breaks <laughs> expectations. And I wonder what they're going to do if he's now in the coaching role and he's in a more of a leadership role. Is his self-growth and journey now to understand that the power his example has or maybe something like that? But I'm curious. You know, I thought that they were hinting at further emotional growth for him because of the whole, the Diamond Dogs group and him initially not wanting to be a part of it. And then at the end of the season saying, you know, can I get some advice? 
they, you know, they kind of bring him into the Diamond Dogs and him not being dissatisfied with it. He, you know, he thought it was going to be awful and he's like, oh, that's not so bad. But, you know, it looks like at least they're trying to show that that Roy is, is beginning to make some progress in communicating with men. We know he can communicate with women, right? He has his group of women that he, he does uh, yoga with or whatever else, right? Um, which, again, I, I think is part of that, what they're doing and trying to get us to like him because of his internal contradictions, right? His seeming contradictions. Um, but hopefully he will he will be able to communicate his feelings uh, without violence to other men in the in the next season. <laughs> Having a, an aggressive, combative, hyper-masculine persona in public is a problem that the show doesn't seem to be able to come to terms with, at least from my perspective. I feel like in some ways the show backtracked on that. I mean, there's a couple scenes that made me sit up and go, wait a second. Uh, one of them was when Roy tells Ted that He's ruined Jamie as a player by making him too considerate and thoughtful and that he needs to be a prick. I mean, that idea that in order to be a good athlete, you have to be a prick. You have to get into the other players' heads. You, 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 you got to psych them out. You, you, you have to dominate them and that that's a good thing. There was that. And then there was another scene where Dr. Sharon tells Ted that he's created a really uh, supportive and thoughtful community around the team. And Ted is like, well, thank you. And she's like, but you don't win. So it's it's almost saying that like, well, within the context of sports, you can't be supportive all the time because you have to win. Like the, the competitive edge that you need requires a level of, of aggression and a level of combativeness. And they're not saying that, you know, these players should just be a, a, a jerk all the time. But they are saying it's useful and necessary to win in the institution of sports. Mm. I was just going to add that in the end, Roy comes back to the stadium. He goes inside that world because he can't do that stuff out there. Anyways, I just think that's – I hadn't thought about that before, but they basically bring him back into the world where he can be that. Right, where, where, where his, um, his aggressiveness is, a, is an asset. There's this concept of the, of the magic circle within game spaces, you know, digital spaces, but also in terms of sports. There's this idea that you need to be an aggressive, macho figure on the field. And, and what you do there won't affect your home life. It won't affect your relationship. There's this separation that people want to have. And we see that with Roy. He can, he can be this aggressive guy on the field when he's coaching or when he's playing. But then when he goes home to Keeley, he can be nice and sweet. And there's no bleed over there. There is. I mean, you, you are not two separate people just because you're on a field. Yeah. And my feeling is that maybe the show can't square that. I mean, if the hyper competitiveness and the hyper aggressiveness and the hyper, you know, the hyper masculinity of professional sports is pushing men to be angry and aggressive with other men on the field, then that might be a problem with the institution of competitive sports. Yeah. And I think with soccer, it's so interesting because it is a team sport and people call it the beautiful game. And I think the show uses that metaphor often. Here's a team, they have to pass to each other in order to score, to win. But then it doesn't really get into like the darker side of professional soccer. Think about this one example of like from the World Cup, I forget what year it was. It was like in the 2000s at some point, but the 
this French player, Zinedine Zidane, who was like considered like the best player in the world at the time. But in the biggest game of the World Cup, he lost it and he headbutted mm-hmm. um, somebody and was ejected from the game and had a red card and like lost his team the thing. But that moment, I remember watching it as a younger person, you know, it was like shocking. I mean, this happens in sports all the time, like these sudden, very <laughs> like violent things. And the announcers, they will use similar rhetoric to justify it. Like, oh, the heat of the moment, emotions right. got the best of him, you know, those right. kinds of things. But, you know, I think that's the complicated thing the show has to get into is like, you can have this beautiful game, but then the institution and the way that it's living within patriarchal stuff, you know, also has a really violent and scary side to it in the real world. So I think they might have to get to that through Roy's character a bit. We'll see. I don't know. I'm not particularly hopeful that they will. I mean, I feel like the show is trying to have it both ways with Roy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It feels like there's a contradiction between what the game of, of, of football wants of men and what Ted is trying to create that is actually in conflict and can't help but be, at least to my mind. I, and I agree with you. And I don't think they will. I don't think they will try to eliminate those contradictions. I don't even know if they're aware of those contradictions. I mean, I think it's uh, it's really interesting that they're critical of the way uh, Ted is dealing with his emotions. Right? That he's he's bottling things up. He's kind of dishonest about things with his with the people around him. And yet, we have an episode where specifically he's saying, you know, don't let your opponents know the truth. Don't let them see that you're tired, right? And that's exactly what he's doing through the whole thing, right? He is not letting anyone see uh, how he feels, right? He's hiding it from everyone as much as he can. They're critical about it with Ted, but not with sports. That's a that's a normal part of coaching. That is something that everyone's going to say, of course, you're going to deceive them as much as you can. Uh, what's okay on the sports field is not okay in a relationship. I, I, I don't think they'll be critical of that at all in the next season. Well, they already have a straw man in Nate. Ah, right. He's going to be the the villain coach versus the He's Darth Vader <laughs> and you know the villain the villain is still Rupert, so. Yeah. I mean, he's the, yeah, the Rupert Emperor. is the Emperor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the show's still very very interesting and entertaining to watch, but to these questions of whether they're going to get there, I, I don't know anymore. <laughs> yeah, it really is a mixed bag. I mean, you get some really rare depictions of men struggling with their masculinity and what's expected of them. And then in other ways, the show just sort of reinforces it without question. Mm -hmm. To me, it feels a little bit arbitrary. I think we're trying to, you know, part of this podcast is to try to deconstruct it and figure out which things they're willing to address and which things they're not. And I think season three will give us an opportunity to do that further. So I hope you'll both uh, come back and join me for that conversation. Uh, Looking forward to to the end of the the trilogy here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Please remember that all of our pop culture detective projects are 100% funded by listeners and viewers like you. So you won't hear a bunch of ads or sponsorships on this podcast. If you do enjoy the kind of in-depth media analysis that you just heard, please consider going over to Patreon to support our work. Just go to patreon.com slash popdetective. As always, you can keep up to date with our projects on Twitter, at Pop Detective, and find all of our long-form video essays on the Pop Culture Detective YouTube channel. And there will be a new video up soon, so keep an eye out for that. We'll be back again very soon with another audiophile investigation. So until then, 
Please remember to follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many, many other platforms. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.